Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Jordan. We're going to talk about Tom Nichols. We're going to talk about what we preached last weekend. And we're introducing a new segment for the remainder of this week. That's coming up here on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. Happy Monday, as Brian Fromm loves to say. And I'm now becoming adept at saying myself. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome. We're so glad you're here. If you'd like to find us, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcast. Plus, Brian Fromm recently discovered you can, in fact, ask Alexa to play The Common Good Podcast. 100% true. And our voices will, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your interpretation, they will show up for you upon request. Brian Fromm, I don't know if you knew, but today is National Cheddar Fries Day. It's National Lookalike Day. It's National Pineapple Upside Down Cake Day. Wonderful. And honest to God, it's National Lima Bean Respect Day. <laughs> Not that you have to enjoy them. You just have to respect them. <laughs> oh, man, I want to make that into a shirt. Like, you don't have to respect us. Oh, no, I said it wrong. Dang it. <laughs> you don't have to love us. <laughs> you just have to respect us. And it's like a lima bean with a bandana on or something. That'd be fun. Uh, okay. So the thing that literally... My entire Twitter feed was blown up with last night was this uh, documentary, The Last Dance, which I couldn't figure out how to watch last night. But you apparently watched last night. How, how was that? I loved it. So really? I think I loved it for a couple different reasons. So I watched it with my son and uh, we, watched, we watched both episodes. And uh, so I think I loved it for two reasons. One, even though I grew up on the East Coast, everybody my age, your age, grew well, and probably not you because you're from Detroit and the Pistons, but <laughs> right, right. Uh, everybody, even if you weren't from Chicago, you still loved Michael Jordan at a certain age. And so this kind of took back to the childhood, although the 98 seasons when I'm in college, uh, so cool memories, right? To be reminded of how fun that team was in this. And secondly, I think there's this huge buzz because none of us have anything new to watch right now. <laughs> yeah, so, especially sports related, right? Nothing sports related. So the build up for this was yep. like, uh, was was out of control. And so uh, it did not disappoint. Yeah, last night, if you aren't aware, was episodes one and two of a 10 episode docu-series. So they're going to do two for the next, for five Sundays, there'll be two on each one. And uh, last night dealt with a lot of Michael Jordan's like background in his early years, got into a lot of Scottie Pippen stuff that I'd forgotten. So it was really fun. And, and then watch my son who obviously has heard a lot of Michael Jordan, but has never right. seen him. Right. Never right. saw him play. Right. Uh, has seen highlights. Um, yeah. It was fun to watch it with him. Little known thing that some people don't know. Uh, I, did you hear this? Cause this is, a walk into some of these guys' minds. Uh, Jordan, the reason this is 20 years later is he sat on all of this. He had to give permission for this to be released. Right. Uh, he gave permission for this to be released and to start working on the documentary on the day of the parade of LeBron James's last NBA Finals championship in, in Cleveland when people were starting to question whether LeBron James was the greatest of all time. Oh, no that kidding. is the day that Michael Jordan said, we can do this now. <laughs> no kidding. It's a true story. Oh, that's interesting. It's funny yeah. that you bring up the Detroit thing too, because like outright, I remember like kind of being raised to not like Jordan specifically. 
Yeah, I, and next week you're going to get uh, the, the Detroit Piston end of this. But, yeah, I could imagine where you grew up, you were in that pocket in our country, probably you guys in Cleveland. Right. Uh, people who were, who were told, no, we don't like this Jordan guy because he keeps beating us. Although you guys beat him all the time in the beginning. That's what I know. Oh, about. man. I, gotta, I should figure out a way to watch this so we can talk about this next week because that would, yep. be, that would be especially fun, I think. Yep. Uh, there was this article, uh, Christianity Today, that I wanted to reference a little bit here because, like, later in the show, you and I are going to talk about what we preached. We'll, t- we'll kind of get into the nitty-gritty of how the weekends have been for us. Uh, but this headline was super interesting. It says, churches don't get too comfortable with online, which is almost the opposite of what uh, you hear a lot of experts saying right now, like, hey, get used to this space, get comfortable, we're going to be here for a while. But John Thomas uh, wrote, digital worship is a necessary stopgap under pandemic conditions, but in the long run, in-person fellowship is indispensable. What's going on here? Well, one thing that's fascinating here is that this is a review of a book. Right. uh, And he wrote the book called, uh, or the book was written uh, by, it looks like Jay Kim. uh, And then John Thomas is doing the review of it. And the book is called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age, released on March 30th. Could you imagine writing a book like this with no idea with what was coming and it released right. at the end of March with all that we're going through right now? When Talk he saw your- all this happening, like what was going through his mind knowing his own release date? That's, <laughs> I mean, that's be, bonkers. It had to be crazy. Every church is going online right, and right. he's got this book, Analog, Analog Church. I do think it's a, it's a really helpful, and it's a long review here. I might want to pick up this book because it looks really good. Yeah. Um, but this move now that we've all had to move towards digital worship, we've all had to go virtual. Um, the, the idea that while this is a necessary stopgap, that since it's going to last a while, we still need to do well and keep improving on, keep doing what, keep connecting. That in the long run, whenever things get back to, uh, you know, air quote normal, whatever normal is going to be, uh, in-person fellowship is indispensable. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is, and, and for us as pastors, but everyone in my church and other pastors I've been talking to, I don't hear anybody going, no, let's stay digital. Everyone is just longing to be back right. in person right now. And so there's great things about digital worship, and it's a great piece of technology that's allowed us to continue meeting through this. Uh, but I think his greater point about in-person fellowship being indispensable is only being proven uh, Sunday after Sunday as this goes on longer. Well, and again, the other reference they make too, because we have such limited time here, Marshall McLuhan. I don't know if you read any Marshall McLuhan, but he was uh, this Canadian philosopher and media theorist. He references at the very beginning of this article, uh, his book, Understanding Media. There's a couple that McLuhan has written that right now feel like borderline prophetic. But what I find so interesting though, is that we're we are in, I mean, we've talked about this being a digital age anecdotally since we've had a show, but like right now feels particularly digital. Right. And given like our conversation last week between Newhoff and Frost and Fitch and Holtzclaw, and then you know, even asking Stetzer some of his opinions of what does this all look like? It's amazing to me how, I don't know that we're divided, but varied the responses have been, I think, even just interpersonally about the significance of in-person right. and what that re-entry looks like is strange to talk about because it it's kind of like, it's sort of anyone's guess. We all know in-person matters. We all know that matter matters and like the body matters and in-person gathering matters. And yet people who are you know responsible for leading these churches and organizations are left with the responsibility of figuring out, well, we don't know what that's actually going to look like. So how do you, 
elevate the importance of meeting in person while not not making it the main That's thing right. in the drum right now because you know we know that none of us can. Yeah, we have no idea. Like the, I have, I'm guessing there's going to be a season, and who knows how long a season is where we can almost have like a hybrid of in person and digital. And right. what is that going to look like? So yeah, we don't want to bang the drum too hard because there's probably going to be a, a long runway here before, and it may never be the same as what it was, right? It may never right. be a thousand people in one auditorium at one time. Um, who knows where this is all going to end up, but man, this book is really helpful. And like, like we said, somewhat prophetic because it really wasn't written obviously with any of this in mind because it hadn't happened yet. Right. And again, we only had a moment or two to touch on it, but I would yeah. encourage you, the article is posted on our Facebook page, the common good radio show. I'd encourage you to read it and maybe even more so encourage you to comment. Cause we'd love to know this is kind of one of the things that I've enjoyed in this last four or five weeks is just hearing the diversity of opinions people have about, how we're doing, what the right next steps. We know that some people are out protesting right now. And, you know, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. I'm just, I'd be really curious to know in general what your posture is towards this book and this article. And uh, we'd love to have a dialogue there. Coming up next, uh, here's the headline, The Problem with Thinking You Know More Than the Experts. We're going to hear a little bit from Tom Nichols, who's the author of The Death of Expertise. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. The weather is finally not terrible. I got sunburned yesterday, which I don't even actually mind because we haven't had enough sun to get burned. So my son, my son was outside. We were outside playing all day yesterday and we walked like last night. I'm like, you're red, man. Like, this is good. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, it it felt like a strange. I don't know. It's like, um, what was that movie? It feels like the seeing like the first signs of life, like the sprout, yeah. you know, in the middle of the desert. I got sunburned. I was like, okay, we're going to okay. be okay. <laughs> we can do this. Although I also will tell you, I will tell you that I think I told you a couple weeks ago that my son and I created a wiffle ball league in our backyard and That's I'm right. super excited for it. Uh, as of yesterday, I'm currently 0 and 4. <laughs> oh, man, thanks, thanks for trusting us with that knowledge, Brian, because I'm definitely going to do that it's against this is going to be a regular like counseling session for me because I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble getting the victories here. <laughs> that's kind of what this show is anyway, isn't it? Yes, I mean, yes. that's not new information to anybody who's been listening for a while. <laughs> All right. So I saw this article uh, out of PBS news hour and the headline intrigued me. The problem with thinking, you know, more than the experts. Do you know anyone, Brian, who thinks they know more than the experts? I have, I have, don't, CNN. You, don't, you don't say any names. Yeah. I have cable news on in the background right now. And that's pretty much what they do. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's pretty good. Here's how it starts. It says uh, more and more people don't care about expert views. That's according to Tom Nichols, author of the death of expertise, who says Americans have become insufferable know-it-alls uh, locked in constant conflict and debate with others over topics. They actually know almost nothing about. Nichols shares his humble opinion on how we got here. So it's about three minutes, and I want you just to listen to a little bit of his perspective, and then Brian and I will react. A few years ago, a mischievous group of pollsters asked American voters whether they would support bombing the country of Agrabah. As you might expect, Republicans tended to support military action, while Democrats were more reluctant. There's only one problem. Agrabah doesn't exist. It's from the animated Disney film Aladdin. Only about half the people surveyed figured this out, and liberals and conservatives gleefully pointed fingers at each other. For experts in foreign affairs, however, there was no way around the alarming reality 
that so many Americans had a well-defined view on bombing a cartoon. I'm one of those experts. I teach both civilians and military officers about national security affairs. In my career, I've advised the Pentagon, the CIA, and political leaders from both major parties. Increasingly, however, lay people don't care about expert views. Instead, many Americans have become insufferable know-it-alls, locked in constant conflict with each other while knowing almost nothing about the subject they're debating. How did this happen? How is it that people now not only doubt expert advice, but believe themselves to be as smart or even smarter than experienced professionals? Parents who refuse to vaccinate a child, for example, aren't really questioning their doctors. They're replacing their doctors. They've decided that attending the University of Google, as one anti-vaccine activist put it, is the same as going to medical school. People who have no idea how much the United States spends on foreign aid think that they're the peers of experienced diplomats. Experts in almost every field can tell similar stories. There's a lot of blame to go around for all of this. The smartphones and tablets that we carry around all day that we think can answer anything are only part of the problem. The American educational system, from grade school to graduate school, encourages students to think of themselves and their views as special. An A is now a common grade. The news media, while trying to tell people what they need to hear, must compete for ears, eyes, and clicks, and so are also forced to ask them what they'd like to hear. And even if we manage to avoid the intellectual saboteurs of the Internet, we're still all too likely to get our news and views from social media, where a silly meme from your Aunt Rose in Schenectady competes for your attention with actual information. We need to find our way back from this ego-driven wilderness. Historically, people return to valuing expert views in times of trouble or distress. We're all willing to argue with our doctors until our fever is out of control. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. But that's where we're headed. And unless we start accepting the limitations of our own knowledge, then each of us is failing in our obligation to participate in our democracy as involved but informed citizens. Okay, Brian, what do you think here on that? I mean, that story of, of Agrabah and Aladdin <laughs> is really, right, right. it's both funny and scary. Uh, Maybe more because- scary than anything. Yeah, you see this a lot where people don't want to admit, I don't know. Uh, and so they'll just play along. You know, you, uh, who was it? Leno used to make uh, a living out of this in his late night show. Yep. Um, but, but, and that, that conservatives tend to go one direction all the time. Liberals go another direction. Uh, and you, we just see it so much right now on Facebook, on like I made a joke before about cable news where everyone's right. An infectious disease expert right now. Right. And, Everybody is a sociologist and tells us what they're like. Everybody knows exactly what they're doing. And uh, it, it, what it does is it just gets a lot of misinformation out there, but it turns into who can scream at the loudest. And so this is really timely for right now because, uh, because it is a fact where everybody, especially social media, has just magnified this in the past couple of years. Uh, where people just think they know everything about everything. And sometimes the greatest things we can do, whether it be as pastors or just as people, is to say, you know what? I don't know. Let's let's go look up somebody who we can trust and who does know. Well, And part of what I appreciate about his general posture wasn't that no one knows anything. There obviously right. still are experts out there, and the, the people that know should be weighing in. And that's not to say there isn't, I think, an appropriate space to simply share an opinion. I, I don't know that 
I don't know that we need to say, hey, in, unless you're an expert in this, don't speak to it all. That's, that's not helpful either. But when he said finding a way back from an ego-driven wilderness, that I thought was pretty clarifying, right? Because he's not saying don't say anything ever, but it is helpful to just accept the limitations of our own knowledge, our own intellect. Like that is healthy and good to say, okay, this is how I feel right now. Uh, but if an expert weighs in or there's an opposing opinion by somebody who's qualified to weigh in, we should at least give pause. It sometimes feels like we double down when someone who has expertise in an area refutes something we're saying. Yeah. Like, ah, this is my experience. That's my truth. You can't. Yeah. I'm not saying they both can't coexist in the same space, but I do think it comes down to a level of intellectual humility, humility to say, okay, well, I still feel this very strongly but I hear what you're saying expert in your field. Right. And I need to, at the very least, I need to grapple with that a little bit. I'm not saying just, you know, accept it wholesale, but it, that does take some humility though to say, all right, well, I still feel very strongly about what I just posted or what I feel or what I said, but when met with conflicting opinions from experts, I, I think that's an important posture to step back from a little bit. Yeah. His line there that says lay people don't care about expert views. And obviously that's painting with a broad brush, but that's hard. Like that's, that's scary. And it, you get a lot of it right now during this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, this is how we're getting crazy conspiracy theories popping up. Right. Because people are going, well, that expert is part of the deep state or is trying to throw us down. You know, everything's political. Right. And so not only will we not listen to experts, but now we have like our culture, or at least many wings of our culture, don't even trust the experts if they don't line up exactly with what they think instead of vice versa. And it's so dangerous. And we're seeing that danger right now with the how, how even the coronavirus and how we should be dealing with it is becoming politicized. Right. Uh, and, and people are starting to, you know, people are starting to go after the experts. And right, uh, man, right. it's, just, it's just a dangerous stew. It makes me feel really uncomfortable as I watch it. Well, it's been interesting too, anecdotally, even seeing, I've seen this interaction a thousand times over where somebody posts a meme and then somebody else weighs in and says, hey, a quick Google search would reveal that's not actually true. <laughs> yes. And then the person that posts it comments, nah, I still think it's funny. Like it's a willingness <laughs> to keep misinformation out there yeah. in the internet world. To me, like, especially, and we've talked about this before, as Christ followers, I think we have an added responsibility to be really diligent about making sure we're doing the work to figure out if what we're posting is actually true. Obviously, there's a lot of gray in this nuance, but when it's not gray or not nuanced and we're confronted with it, I think the the Christian thing to say is, you know what? My bad. I posted that in the heat of the moment, and I think this is a really, really important thing to step back from. Yep. Well, coming up next, we have not done it in a hot minute, but Brian and I, because why not? We're going to talk about what we preached yesterday. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. I love me some John Legend, don't you, Brian? I really do. I've missed that song. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure you and I are the only two who have. Uh, If you want to find us, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. It's where we post all of our articles, and you can weigh in. You can comment. You can also send us a message if you have suggestions for a segment or an interview or an idea. That's the best place to interact with us. You can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good at Common Good Talk for Twitter and Instagram and wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, uh, it really, really does help us out. A lot of people subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, for those of you who have, we thank you so much. Plus, you can just tell Alexa, hey, play me Common Good Radio Show and 
she, it, she will. It will. She will. She will. All right. That's, I'm, I'm okay with that. We haven't done this segment in a while, and I don't totally know why. And we might not do it again for a while, but I figured, why not? What did you preach yesterday, Brian, from? Yeah, you know, yesterday was, I don't know, week three or week four of being online. And uh, before I talk about exactly what I preached, you know, one of something I've learned watching myself preach is, uh, is I really move my arms a lot. <laughs> oh, that's right. You don't, you haven't typically watched yourself preach. Correct. I've listened to myself before, but this is, this is new for us. And so uh, we record it beforehand. So I'm even home watching it right as it's going on. And, uh, and I'm like, man, I really move my arms a lot. <laughs> you know what? I had the exact same realization when I started the yellow box and watching myself on video for the first time. Same thing. Did you really? Oh yeah. hundred percent. So funny. Next week, I'm just sticking my hands in my pockets the whole time. <laughs> I, I went that route. That's also not a great solution. That's also no good. <laughs> you, you look insane if you have your hands in the pocket the whole time. That's really I don't trust this guy. What's he doing? Right. Why is he so shifty? Uh, so we started a five-week series yesterday called Grace in Action. And what it's going to be is uh, five stories where Jesus just shows uh, unbelievable grace to somebody. And then what mm-hmm. result did it have in that person's life? So I love preaching stories. So I'm very excited for this. And uh, yesterday, the first one was Mark chapter one, uh, Jesus's healing of the leper. And uh, so uh, talked about grace in general and then talked about what it read the story and then really unpacked what would it be? What is a life like for somebody with leprosy? And there was a point where I said, you know, uh, here's one way we could think about it. All of this social distancing we're doing right now, what would it be like if you were the only person that people were staying away from and it was your life, not just for this season and just kind of that alienation and uh, to go along with the physical pain and everything Mm -hmm. going on. Uh, And then um, talked about how Jesus uh, touches the leper. Jesus doesn't have to touch the leper. Jesus could just say, hey, you're healed, right? Right. Uh, But Jesus touches the leper and restores the leper right there. uh, And in that uh, his his life had been transformed in a moment and then really related it to the gospel. And uh, that the gospel is this transformation of an act of Jesus. We are desperately in need like the leper uh, and uh, said, that as we grasp that, then the result in the leper's life, uh, even though Jesus tells him, don't go talk about this, it's, it's almost reads like he can't help it. And he just goes and is like, let me tell you what happened. And mm. uh, that, that that is often as we understand the grace of Jesus in our life, uh, it spurs us to then go and want other people. I kind of ended by saying, you know what, we're basically... Uh, to keep the imagery going, like we're one healed leper wanting to tell another leper this good news of healing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so just trying to bring home uh, this message of grace that, that this leper was just at, on his knees in front of Jesus. And I suppose Jesus could have said, nope, I'm not going to do it. And the leper could have done nothing about it. Would have still right. had leprosy. Right. And, uh, but Jesus in his grace, uh, cleansed the man and in doing so transformed his entire life. And so uh, I love the story. Uh, I loved preaching it uh, because it is such a beautiful picture of the transformation that we all have experienced uh, just maybe not as, you know, physically visibly as this leper did, 
but, but there are so many touch points to it for us. And you know what, when we're Christians for a long time, we can lose sight of that. We can lose sight of, uh, you know, that, uh, that I needed and I need continually uh, that grace-filled, unmerited favor work of Jesus in my life. And so uh, it was challenging for me, exciting for me, and so hopefully it was for our people. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. So what about you? I saw you. I was on Facebook. I told you earlier, I saw you preaching on my Facebook page. So uh, what, yeah, just for the record, Brian Fromm confessed to me that he hopped on for one and a half minutes before leaving. So That's true. That so that's not true. a. <laughs> it's, it's a. It's guilty. <laughs> that's not a powerful endorsement. Apparently, it was super boring. No, I'm kidding. Nope. Hey, we, the, so we're in the middle of a, 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 a series. Easy for me to say. Called yep. big words, and we're tackling four like big words of the Christian faith. And so yesterday, I actually taught on the atonement. Ooh, it's a big word. It, it was. It was a big. I. I don't think I've ever straight up taught on the atonement. I yep. taught uh, sort of the three major theories of atonement, being Christus Victor satisfaction and penal substitution. So like the first half of it felt a little more, uh, maybe luxury, which was kind of intense, especially preaching to an empty room. That was, that was strange, but it felt, I I felt really uh, grateful for the opportunity to kind of unpack some of the history and the background. And then I got to interview Scott McKnight. So for a couple of minutes, he was sharing from his brilliant book called the community called atonement and he was explaining a little bit about this experience where he went golfing one time with a friend and this friend only brought one club that he used in every circumstance. Hmm. He said, sometimes subscribing wholesale to one theory is like trying to play an entire game of golf with just one club. Wow. Says, the Bible, the Bible gives a rich array of pictures. And when we hone in just on one picture or one imagery, it's like playing with one club and we, and we totally miss out. So we kind of got to come out of that interview talking a little bit about the posture of God at the cross, at the atonement. One of the things a professor of mine, a buddy of mine said, he said, any atonement theory in which God doesn't look like the father and the prodigal son is woefully inadequate. Hmm. I, I was so convicted by that depiction, knowing that a lot of people were handed a version of God who was predominantly angry, wrathful, vengeful, impunitive. And I was thinking about that, like the story of the prodigal son, the, the father doesn't see the son a long way off. And then, he says, well, I got to go kill a servant real quick before I can welcome my son back, right? Mm. And he, no, he runs after him. And I, I think the justice that God is committed to is restorative, not punitive, right? I, I don't think it's one of the things I said was God didn't send Jesus to change God's mind about us. He sent him to change our mind about God. But Jesus, mm. Jesus is the full revelation of who God is and how he is. And we've not always known that. But in Jesus, we see a picture not of not of predominantly some like wrathful, angry God, although I do believe God gets angry at sin, at injustice. I believe that's part of it. But for me, it's the difference between like essence and expression. The essence of God is love, and that's expressed in mercy, wrath, forgiveness, justice. Like those are all expressions of it. And so it was, I don't know, it was really fascinating to be able to talk about what really happened here at the cross and how so often we get tied to one club, right? Like it's like, it's like being in a house trying to see the entire sky looking through just one window, right? There's just no way, there's no way to do it. And I think I, my prayer is that it was really freeing for people, at least at some degree to maybe push back on some of the categories they were given or some of the depictions of God, because like in Christ, we discover what the father was always like in 
And it's God hanging on that cross there himself. Yeah. He doesn't send a representative. He doesn't send someone else to do it. He, he does it himself and he absorbs sin and recycles it into forgiveness. And I think, I don't know that, that I think for me, I was nervous about the talk knowing that it was like really going to be pretty heady. Um, but then after, after teaching it, man, it just felt really freeing to see at, at the very least, hopefully kind of rattle some of the categories that sometimes we so strongly like cling to. And, uh, man, that's, that's my hope and prayer that people, that's great. People begin to see God, you know, as I, as I, as I believe him to be. And I think that's, again, keep being in mind, all of it's a mystery, right? Like that was kind of my caveat. Like, Hey, we're not going to, at the end of this, come to some airtight explanation at all. And, uh, yeah, felt, felt good to preach, man. I'd I'd love to know uh, how the rest of your series develops as you go along. We will do that for sure. But coming up next. So Judson university, my alma mater, uh, has rolled out a daily podcast and uh, Chris Lash has kind of been at the helm of that. But there's a guy named John Perrine. He's the uh, husband of Jenna Perrine, who we've had on the show before. And this whole week, each day, he's rolling out a different podcast under this theme, uh, Meaning Making in the Midst of Pandemic. And we're going to feature each of those each day, uh, the same time here on The Common Good. So that's coming up next. And the first installment here is How the World Lost Its Story. So that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good and wherever it is you get your podcasts. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier, so Judson University is rolling out these daily podcasts. And for this week, it's a very special installment with John Prine and it's called Meaning Making in the Midst of Pandemic. And today's episode is brilliant. It's called How the World lost its story. And so we're going to feature each installment of this podcast each day this week on The Common Good. So we're just going to simply play it for you. And I have no doubt that this podcast is going to bless you. My name is John Perrine. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a pastor from the Chicagoland area. Been a good friend of Chris Lash for a number of years now. And Chris actually reached out to me to ask if I would run a series for this whole week on the topic of meaning. Specifically, I'm going to call this meaning-making in the midst of a pandemic. Now, why do we need to talk right now about meaning? Well, I think if you were to reflect back to pre-quarantine days, you uh, would recall that there were a number of rhythms and rituals that would give some sort of purpose, intention, or meaning to your life. Uh, If I sat down and talked to you, you might come up with a number of things to point to in a week. Uh, Maybe for some of you, it was Thursday night going out to grab Chipotle with those couple of friends. Or maybe for others, like my wife and I, one of our favorite things to do is when we get a chance to go to the movie theaters to sit down, get a tub of popcorn, and just really enjoy a good story. For others of you, perhaps it's hobbies, uh, classes, maybe it was going to the gym, maybe it was a particular professor that you just loved hearing lectures from, maybe it was, I mean, it really could be anything, right? All of us are looking for meaning. All of us come up with a number of sources to turn to, to add and contribute to meaning in our lives. Yet what this quarantine has forced us to do is confront a world where we are stripped suddenly and quickly of those sources of meaning. In fact, it's almost like 
those rituals and rhythms, whatever they were, again, hanging out with friends, seeing movies, doing hobbies that you love. When we've been stripped of these rituals, they're like a well that we had been turning to to find sustenance, right? A well, a source where we would draw meaning. We would uh, go to on a regular basis. We would cup our hands and drink deeply from whatever this source of meaning was. And now in this quarantine, we found that those wells are boarded up. Those small and regular sources of meaning have been prevented uh, from us having access to them. And, And if you're like me, what that means is that now suddenly my week blends together in these strange ways. It's almost like time has become this mush. In fact, the more I sit in this quarantine, the more I start to feel disconnected from myself, like... Who am I? What is my purpose here? Why am I here? What am I really doing? Uh, Have you ever noticed this sense in yourself? I mean, for many of us, this struggle to find meaning is a day-to-day reality. In fact, some of the reason why we prefer to keep up those rituals and rhythms is because rather than actually offering us true meaning, those, those small distractions that we used to rely on before this quarantine was enacted were actually a way of distracting ourselves from the lack of meaning we so often feel. I can't help but think of the prophet Jeremiah and his really uh, terrible words that would have surely shocked his original audience that comes in Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. Jeremiah is standing before the people who have themselves been obsessed with distractions, everything from finding new gods to worship, to consuming goods, to politics, to agri, I mean, anything they could find the people of Israel were using to distract themselves. The reality is we actually are struggling a lot with meaning right now in our society. If you look at studies on depression, depression is inherently an absence of meaning in one's life. That's why depression is so weighty. It's why it's so heavy to deal with. And it's why it's so hard to just throw off on your own. If you feel like you don't know where meaning is coming from, if in fact you feel like your day-to-day life has no meaning, then you will inevitably struggle with this cloud of sadness, of grief that will be impossible to shake. This is why even before our quarantine was in place, depression was hugely prevalent and on the rise in the last 10 years. And why now during this quarantine, of course, mental health studies are going ballistic that depression is everywhere. My point there with depression is that depression is more a symptom than the problem itself. Depression is a symptom of an absence of meaning. So why is it that we are struggling so much to find meaning in our day and age? Well, a number of years ago, the magazine First Things 
published an article by one of America's great theologians, a guy named Robert Jensen, He's a Lutheran theologian. If you ever get a chance, or if you're interested in theology, he's definitely someone to check out. But this article was entitled, How the World Lost Its Story. How the World Lost Its Story. And Jensen is going to argue this. In the past 50 years, our culture has shifted. See, when our parents were born, our parents entered a world that was inherently storied. Even if you weren't religious, and that's many people's parents, the world they entered had a basic assumption from the academy to politics, even to movies and the arts, that there was an inherent flow to history that somehow had a beginning, that had some sort of progression or intention, and was in some way culminating towards an end. So even if you didn't believe in God and you were a Big Bang uh, evolutionist, or all the way to a conservative Christian family that believed in an avid seven-day creation, everyone inhabited a storied world. Yet Jensen argues that in the last 50 years, there's been this growing sense culturally that there is, in fact, no story. He points to philosophers such as Sartre and Camus. Uh, Sartre famously uh, published a book of philosophy called Nausea, in which he argued that there was, in fact, no meaning to existence. His follow-up work to it, he was going to call it, he calls it, from being to nothingness. This is what Sartre says, life is inherently about. This is called absurdist philosophy. The result is that our culture and our art are actually reflecting to us shifts that have been taking place. One other major thinker that we'll mention for today is a man by the name of Charles Taylor. And he, with Jensen, is going to argue that due to all of these complex pressures and interactions all the way from the sexual revolution of the 1960s to the civil rights movements to the end of the Cold War to 9-11, our culture has been swelling in this increased assumption that there is no story and thus that there is no God. Taylor says that we, as a result, find ourselves stuck in this imminent frame. What he means by that is that when we go to look for meaning in our lives, instead of before, when we could look up to the heavens, to God, to find an author and perfecter of the world, when we could look to that same God and to the scriptures to see some sort of coherent story that we could inhabit. Instead, in the imminent frame, all we have is ourself. And when you look to yourself, all you see are days stretching out in front of you, are lonely hours spent on your phone, are mundane tasks, either that you have to do for work or for school or chores that you have to do now around the house because you're home. And as you go to look for meaning in these very imminent, these very close wells, the more water you drink from them, the less and less hope you have that there's any sort of purpose or intention or coherence to the world and to the story that you've been given. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities and Thriving Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour is the anniversary of the Columbine shooting. Plus, we're going to interview Dallas Jenkins for our Media Monday segment. Dallas Jenkins is the director and creator of The Chosen. And we're going to talk a little politics. That's coming up next on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles, even stuff we don't talk about, but you can weigh in there. There's some lively discussion right now. You can also send us messages if you have suggestions or ideas. Also, it wouldn't hurt if you uh, rate, review, and subscribe to all of that stuff there. Share the page. Literally anything would help us out. And uh, you can also get us at 1160hope.com slash the common good, wherever it is you get podcasts at common good talk for both Twitter and Instagram. And that's enough, right? We don't need I think that's good. No that's one's good. really been beating on our door, like demanding we get a TikTok or, <laughs> or a Snapchat or any of that. Somebody, now that I'm saying it, someone's probably going to ask, but uh, you- <laughs> why not? So uh, I mentioned just a little bit ago, it is the 21st anniversary of the Columbine shooting, which, first off, just seems so bizarre. 21 years ago, I feel Crazy. like it, only, it doesn't feel that long ago at all. But before we dive into that story, uh, why don't you tell us about something the station is doing? Yeah, you know, during this coronavirus pandemic, uh, we do know that sadly many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if that's you, if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. All one word, 1160hope.com slash open for for business. There's a brief form there, fill it out. And we'll go, we're going to start compiling all of that information and sharing it with our listeners. Totally free, no catch, just kind of our way of trying to help some of our listeners who are trying to stay afloat in these hard times. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Way to go, Brian. Well done. Thank you. Um, so you were the one, I don't know if you like, do you remember, is Columbine one of those things that you remember like where you were and what you were doing when all of that, when all of that uh, happened? Does, does that stand out in your mind like that? A hundred percent. Really? That's why uh, every year when this comes around, I always think of that because there are certain things that all of us remember where we were, right? Of, of the right age, 9-11, stuff like that. But um, I will never forget the Columbine massacre happened during my uh, like a month or two months before I graduated college. So it would have been a month, a couple of weeks before I graduated college. So I was a senior at Wheaton. 
uh, living off campus with a bunch of buddies in a house. And uh, I'll never forget coming in and one of them having the TV on and it being the whole breaking news. Hmm. Uh, and he was watching it. We sat down and watched it. And what strikes me as, as odd looking back is I remember this societally, but I also remember this personally that I had no, um, I had no category for a mass school shooting of high school students. Not, none of us did, right? None of it, right? And, and now this sounds, I, I don't mean to sound like numb to it. I think that's part of the problem. But like a mass school shooting where 12 kids die or 11 kids and a teacher, if I remember right, what happened at Columbine, not counting the two gunmen, uh, is like a normal school shooting, right? Like mm-hmm. that's kind of, but at that time it was like, uh, you know, that was all the news did for a week. And I remember just being so blown away by it. And now when I think about it and it doesn't seem like that out of the ordinary, that makes me really sad. <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh, I want to go back to a day where our culture was like, I can't imagine a mass school shooting because uh, I remember that feeling very vividly then and watching lots of news stuff and reading the books that came out like a year later. Cause right after this, I was then a youth pastor uh, and so still processing it with high school kids was uh, still part of what we did. And so, yeah, I, I remember that vividly. You're a little younger than me. Do you remember it as vividly? Uh, I don't know that I remember it as vividly, but I certainly remember it being jarring is the word that I would use. Again, yeah. because like we didn't really seem to have categories for it. It It is different having not ever attended high school. Like I remember friends of mine because I was homeschooled. So I had other friends whose, you know, schools were dramatically shifted after this, just in terms of protocol or even people's general sense of fear. Um, I remember feeling like I didn't quite experience that the same, but it does, I don't know, man, it it, it certainly was a a formative season. And I, you know, I'm like you, like, I think, I think I tweeted this actually, that um, this last March was the first March we we hadn't had a school shooting in I think it was 10 years or something mm. like that. Just so, something so sobering like that. Like, like what you were saying, like I, I, I miss the days. I long for the days when it, when it didn't feel like it was an every month occurrence, but right. we've even, I mean, even since we've been doing this show, I mean, there's been right. oh, 18 years. My goodness. March, 2020 was the first March without a school shooting in 18 years. Mm. That's so sobering to me. And so it feels like the twilight zone, to be honest, yeah. like that, yeah. that it's become such a regular part of our discord. And when I, and I'm not, I'm not talking about policy or anything right now. I'm not right, even talking right. about just in general, like the grief that I feel reading that out loud, the first month, because, and the reason that's the case is probably because of the quarantine, right? Like that right. The very fact that it took some global pandemic for that stat to even be true is, I don't, it's incredibly sobering. And, and I don't know. I don't really have a sense of a takeaway or anything. Maybe, maybe you do. Do you have any kind of pastoral wisdom for us in, in the midst of uh, the reflection on a day that is so painful for so many people? So you, we were looking at an article here about, uh, you know, one of the things I reflected on was it was traumatic for all of us as a country. And it yeah. like dominated the news cycle for, you know, a week, two weeks, a month. Um, but it's still traumatizing for those who've gone through it. And that was one of the articles that we had up here was uh, an article about a guy who was like, I want to get past this, but 
Like this defines my life. Right. And it, it made me think about all the different mass shootings that we've had, school shootings, movie theater, churches, like that changes lives of those people, obviously who were killed and, or the loved ones of those who were killed, but even those who just were spared and didn't die, hmm. uh, it changes their lives forever. And also it, you know, as you ask me, what are the reflections? It does make me, like you said, this isn't about policy. Neither of us, you know, it's kind of above our pay grade, but man, I long for a day uh, where I wish that uh, when I went to high school, you know, five years before the Columbine shooting, this was never a thought, never a thought. Right. Uh, and now I've got three kids at various grades of the school and it's a thought like you have to think right. about it. And that makes me sad. And I wish that wasn't the case as our culture. I'm not so naive as to be like, well, then let's just go back like that Columbine. That's why it's such a cultural um, benchmark, because that kind of broke that wall down. Hmm. Um, but it makes me sad, right? I had four years of high school. I never once worried that some shooter was going to come in. We didn't have to do shooter drills. We didn't have to do any of that. Uh, and I'd be lying if I didn't say that when my kids are at school and I hear a bunch of police cars at once, I don't get nervous, right? Because yeah. that's part of our psyche. Right. And I think that's sad. And that all started uh, with the Columbine shootings 21 years ago. And it gets reinforced with every shooting after that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's well said, man. I, I What I think I'd like to do then just to close up this segment, would, would it be all right if I just simply read the names of the victims? Oh, that'd be powerful. Yeah, go for sort it. Sort of just as a way to honor them 21 years later and all the people that have felt the sting either of this shooting or another shooting. And yeah, I'm just going to do that. I'm going to read the names and we'll just leave it at that. It was 12, uh, 12 students and one teacher. Cassie Bernal is 17. Stephen Curnow, 14. Carrie DePooter, 17. Kelly Fleming, 16. Matthew Kector, 16. Daniel Mouser, 15. Daniel Rorbo, 15. William Sanders, 47. Rachel Scott, 17. Isaiah Scholes, 18. John Tomlin, 16. Lauren Townsend, 18. Kyle Velasquez, 16. Mm. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a few places. Common Good Radio Show, AM 1160, wherever you get podcasts. At Common Good Talk, that's Twitter and Instagram. And Brian has recently discovered you can also ask Alexa, and she is happy to oblige to bring you right to our digital doorsteps. (laughs) But maybe our most long-standing guest of all time? That's very possible. Media Mondays with none other than Dallas Jenkins. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you so much for having me on, and I'm glad that media still exists during this time. <laughs> yes. We, Does we Tiger King qualify as media, or is that a subset now? Is that- as, if, if, if fever dreams are considered media, then yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I actually just watched an episode last night uh, with my wife and son. So yeah, uh, no, I think what's interesting is media is actually being consumed more than ever right now. During this yeah. Also, I don't know if you knew this. Did you know that Facebook has a live feature? I've seen a few people, yeah. just a few. Yeah, I, I unfortunately know that all too well. But yes, um, right. yeah, right now uh, it is uh, at-home media, streaming and whatnot is, is huge, yep. uh, bigger than it's ever been, um, which has ironically been 
uh, I, 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 as much as I hate to say it, has been great for me yes. for my project. Um, but it's it's uh, it's sad that we're kind of stuck in this time. And I think it it makes it even more important for you guys as pastors and mm-hmm. as uh, Christian thought leaders uh, to to make sure that your congregants and that people today are taking this time with things that are good and things yeah. that, are, that are healthy. Uh, yeah. Because obviously, more than ever, there's a, there's the a, a possibility that people are going to be stuck at home filling themselves with, uh, <laughs> with mindlessness. So right. that's, that's the battle I have as a parent is making sure that my yep. kids, we are, we are relaxing our, our, right. our time restrictions that we normally have on our kids. Right. Right. But you've got to be even more vigilant. Well, okay. So that's perfect foreshadowing for anyone who doesn't know who you are and what your project is. Why don't you give us a brief overview before we get into the weeds a little bit? Yeah. So I'm the creator of the chosen, which is the first ever multi-season show about the life of Christ We've talked about it on the air many times uh, about how uh, it's available through our app. So we created an app called The Chosen, and you get it wherever you get your phone apps, you know, Google Play or App Store or whatever. And some people may think, oh, I don't want to watch a show on my phone, but we, uh, at least my partners created this technology that allows you to connect directly to your streaming device from your phone. So if you have an Apple TV, Fire Stick, Roku, Chromecast, whatever, uh, you don't need a subscription. It doesn't cost anything. It's completely free. All eight episodes of season one, and uh, you can just connect it directly to your streaming device. Wow. So during since the quarantine started happening, we made an announcement that not only was the show going to be free, which is which it always which it has been on the app, but it's also been free in limited amounts. Meaning, if right. you were in another country, so the app is in every country in the world right now. But if you're in another country um, and you were trying to access. For, let's say you watch the first three episodes and you get to episode four, you might get this message that says there are no free streams available right now. Mm-hmm. You can either wait a couple hours until free streams open up or you can pay it forward. That's a, that's another uh, element of this whole project mm-hmm. where people, when they're done watching it, if they love it, they can pay it forward, which allows others to watch it for free. It opens up more streams for people and it also helps finance future seasons. Awesome. Well, uh, because we because it's expensive to stream, and you guys know this that streaming costs money. So whenever you're on your right. podcast, it costs whenever people use it. Right. Um, we didn't think we could make it available all of the streams open all the time, yeah. you know, mm. limited around the world. But we decided to do that for the quarantine, mm. and we thought that was going to slow down our fundraising and, and and kind of because it was going to increase our costs. And uh, it has had the opposite effect. Um, mm-hmm. The show has had a bit of an explosion over the last month. Um, we have not only tripled, quadrupled, quintupled our app downloads and the number of views and our social media pages have all doubled in the last month, um, but Pay It Forward has quadrupled and quintupled as well. We're generating more income, and that's what God does. My wife, um, we we call it impossible math um, Mm -hmm. because I won't get into this whole story, but it takes back to when my last movie uh, bombed at the box office and I didn't know what my future was, and God laid it on my wife's heart the phrase, I do impossible math. Mm. And we didn't know what that meant. Um, we didn't know when it would apply or if it would apply. You know, you never know when God is speaking to you, how, what it means. Or sometimes yeah. you don't even know if it's actually his voice or not. Um, right. She just right. felt clear that that phrase was, was going to matter to us. And, and that's wow. what happened. The more free that we've made the show, the more income we have generated for uh, future seasons. It's been extraordinary to see. And so the biggest thing, though, as you guys know, I mean, last couple of weeks, just the, the stories of life change. People's lives are yeah. genuinely changing because of this show. Um, and people are seeing, I think, an authentic Jesus they've never seen uh, portrayed before. 
Hmm. And we're hearing from all over the world, the show is breaking down cultural barriers, denominational hmm. barriers. Um, uh, it's been truly extraordinary to watch and, um, and to see God do it uh, in this way, yeah. using this opportunity uh, that is, by, in by all accounts, a crisis. Mm. Um, to, to how God has, has, for us, it's been an opportunity to introduce people to Jesus more than ever. It's been truly extraordinary to watch. Awesome. Yeah, I want to I want to go back to the extraordinariness of this. What's it been like for you to kind of just see God continue to open doors and continue? As I told you off air, my Facebook feed has been full of people like, "Have you heard of the Chosen? Have you heard like Same. now yeah. that we're locked in our houses, they're they're finding it more and more and more." Yeah. Just what's that like for you as the creator of this and and having put so much time and energy into it? Well, what's really interesting is, and I and I I genuinely mean this. I'm not just saying it. Uh, I went into this project with no expectations, positive or negative. That's something that God taught me in 2017 mm-hmm. that changed my life. Uh, it's, it's not your job to feed the 5,000. It's only to provide the loaves and fish. Yeah. And that phrase has, has changed me. And so when the show is going below quote unquote expectations, like it was for the first six to eight months where it was slow moving. Um, and now that it's exceeding expectations, right. uh, for, those expectations weren't mine. Those are my mm. partners or those are people who uh, mm. were hoping for certain levels of income. I genuinely during this whole process um, have just been practicing this idea of it's not my job to worry about that. I, mm. I'm just providing loaves and fish, which brings me to my, to, to what I'm talking about right now, which is I'm talking to you from an Airbnb in displays mm. um, because I need, I'm getting away uh, from my house for three days to concentrate on writing. I'm writing season two right now with my writing. Oh, wow. And when you're sitting in front of an empty, empty page or, you know, a screen and, and the page is empty and you have to write season two, the amount of financial or spiritual impact that's come from season one, uh, the, your computer doesn't care about that. Right. <laughs> the, 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 script, yes. the scripts for season two do not think, hey, now that you've finally, quote unquote, arrived, right. you know, now it's going to yes. be much easier and this script is going to write itself. Yeah. Um, we still have to deliver season two uh, right. and, and still have the same impact that we've, that we've been having. And I still have to um, look to God for, for the inspiration I have to sure. use. I used to you know, I have to keep vigilant. I have to keep focused, which is very difficult. Mm. Um, so with the show having this bit of an explosion, um, believe me, it's not gotten to my head for two reasons. Number one, God has been uh, doing more with this show than I could ever have ever done on myself. Yeah. Mm. And two, it doesn't, it doesn't make me a better writer. Yeah. <laughs> so right. uh, so awesome. I still have to, I still have to focus on, on, on delivering um, right. the, the healthiest loaves and fish that I sure. can. So that's, that's, uh, I hope that answers your question, but it really oh, totally. absolutely. My, my, it, all it does is make my wife and I more humble and, and it drives us more to, more to our knees because it, it awesome. makes us realize what's at stake here. Right. I love that posture, man. I, I want to try to squeeze in two last questions with like the 90 seconds we have left. One, you've done a bunch of these live events and stuff. I'd love to know what that experience has been like. And then lastly, as we wrap up, uh, how can we be praying for you guys? How can we, the common good audience be lifting you guys up in prayer? That's yep. a great question. Uh, thank you. So with the live streams, um, it's been, it's been extraordinary. We were doing Facebook lives and YouTube lives for a week, one episode a night for eight nights. We have actually still left them up on YouTube if people want to check oh, it out. Awesome. Awesome. But what, if they want to watch the episodes on YouTube, you know, they just look up the chosen, but it will include me. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I'm talking beforehand and afterwards and I'm telling people all this stuff. So if they just want to watch the episodes without having to deal with me and just go to the app and watch it there. It's higher, it's higher quality as well. Um, but yeah, they, we were getting uh, you know, tens of thousands of people all over the world 
uh, watching it at, at one time, which was beautiful. And I think that during this time of, of quarantine, the opportunity to connect people um, was really powerful and people having something that they could unify around and yeah. having that thing be Jesus yeah. and the stories of him uh, uh, and the stories of his followers is extraordinary. So that's been really beautiful to watch. And we really are seeing cultural and age barriers. Kids as, as young as five years old are loving the show, which I had no wow. expectations mm -hmm. of. Uh, Catholics, Mormons, uh, Messianic Jews, uh, Christians, mm. uh, non, uh, you know, even agnostics uh, wow. have, have all loved the show because I think it gets past all of those denominational barriers and theological arguments. Theology mm. is important, but we're yep. just focusing on the stories. Right. And a lot of those arguments came after Jesus was here. Right. <laughs> the, <laughs> yes. the show was focused on when he was here. Uh, prayer is, is vital. In fact, just even just as I talk to you today, the next three days I'm focused exclusively in this bunker working with my writers because working from home with my four teenagers in the house was proving to be cha a challenge. <laughs> I, I struggle myself with focus. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I'm very easily distracted. Um, not only with the show, but just in general, uh, I'm, I'm an ADHD kind of guy. I'm, mm. uh, it, my, it's hard for me to focus and I really do need to focus not only on writing, but on keeping my, my line to Christ and my line to God, the mm. father, uh, tremendously unhindered right now, because, yeah. it's, um, I, th the words that I'm writing that I'm putting into Jesus's mouth and into the disciples mouths, um, you know, they, 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 they are mattering and, mm -hmm. and I, God cares very deeply about how I portray his people. Absolutely. And so uh, I want to make sure that my heart is right and that um, my mind is free from the typical things that men get distracted by, especially mm -hmm. whether it's mm -hmm. late night lusts yep. or whether it's um, just their, the distractions of trying to provide or to be mm -hmm. smart or to be interesting, mm -hmm. whatever it is, I need to yeah. just be, I need to be empty. And uh, that's what, that's what prayer could, could do for me during this time. I love that, man. We, we will definitely, definitely be lifting you up, man. This is sure. Dallas Jenkins, creator and director of the chosen. If you've not seen it, or download the app. What What are you doing with your life? Go get the app. Go good, watch good, it. Hey, good question, Ian. It's great. Thank you. I've seen yeah. most of it. Yeah, I was going to say, as a, speaking as a guy who didn't watch the entire season yet, uh, I would agree with you. I'm what are you doing? Preaching to myself. That's <laughs> that's the best preaching, right? It's uh, yes. good. Good. Definitely awesome. encourage you. Go get the app. Go watch it. Uh, I have no doubt that it'll bless you. Dallas, thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Dallas. Yeah, Monday. Guys, man. great to connect with you. I, I really do miss miss you guys. I can't wait till we can do it in person again. Likewise, man. You're listening to the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can leave us a message with a suggestion for the show or a topic or an idea. You can also review and share that page. All of that does really help us out. You can go to 1160hope.com slash the common good, wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating and reviewing over there is really helpful. Plus at common good talk is both Twitter and Instagram now. And uh, hopefully you find those useful. I want to talk a little bit about this article by Scott McKnight, who I think is absolutely brilliant talking a little bit, uh, specifically about politics. But before we dive into that, Brian, why don't you tell us about something the station's doing? Yeah, we're both excited about this because during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we do know that so many businesses have had to close their doors, reduce their hours. And we also know, though, that there are still many businesses out there that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. Right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Uh, and it's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out a brief form, 
and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. It's totally free, no catch, our way of hopefully helping out our listeners uh, during this trying time. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Way to go. Way to go. So uh, Scott McKnight, we've mentioned him on the show a number of times. I had the privilege of interviewing him for the sermon this last weekend, specifically about atonement and his book called A Community Called Atonement. He is world-renowned for a reason. He also, and I think it's he's sort of the perfect person to write this article um, because he's one of those people that somehow is able to strike a balance between right and left, progressive, traditional. He just he's, He occupies this middle space better than a lot of people. It's probably a lot of the reason why you like Scott Sauls. I think Scott Sauls has a similar right. type of voice. Um, but he wrote this article, and it says, not left, not right, and not religious. The subtext is, is a genuinely Christian politic possible mm. for our time? So he begins with a, a quote that is actually uh, G.K. Chesterton. He says it's something like this. And then he quotes it and he says, I don't know where, but one of our readers can point us to the citation, <laughs> which is so <laughs> that's funny. When you know, so I, that's when you I, know you've made it. <laughs> right, right. Just somebody else correct it. So here's the actual quote. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried, which is mm. close. That's close to what he said here. But um, he goes on to say, the, prog- the problem with progressives is that they are blinded to the partisanship of their claims. The problem with conservatives is that they are blinded to the partisanship of their claims. Both are insufferable and blinded. When Jesus is always on your side, you are blind to the real Jesus. He doesn't square up with you or anyone else. He is more for us than we are ourselves, and he's more against us than we could ever imagine. Hmm. Most Anabaptists I run into today are just Jesus progressives. They wrangle Jesus into covering their partisan stances. I say the same thing about GOP evangelicals. They'd like to think they've got Jesus on their side. He's not. Until he's in your face a bit, you're not talking to the Jesus of the Gospels. Nobody wants to die to themselves the way Jesus did or the way Jesus wants us to. So there, we need to start right there. <laughs> Which is so, I mean, he's, it's so funny too, because if you meet him or talk to him, uh, he doesn't you know, come across like aggressive in any way. Um, but this article kind of comes out swinging. I'd be curious to know what your general thoughts are so far. I th- I think he's dead on. And this is what, uh, why I like somebody like Scott Sauls, right. Who said basically the same thing uh, where he said, if, if, uh, if you don't anger both sides, then you're not uh, doing it right. Basically as a Christian, I I love these guys who can put what I feel and what we feel so much more articulately. Uh, Jesus was not a progressive and Jesus was not a conservative. He was both of those kind of camps, if you will, right. uh, Probably, line up better than the other one, but neither of them have cornered the market on Jesus. And that's where we get in trouble, right? Like so many people in churches or in evangelicalism go, well, no, it's this side is the side of Jesus. And McKnight's going, no, you're missing the point. And if you think that's true, uh, you've got another thing coming. Well, and speaking of camps, Brian, he actually quotes what he calls the equal opportunity critic, Lee Camp. So, good, <laughs> Ironic. Good segue. He says that we, me- we must deconstruct our own paltry notions about what Christianity itself is and, what- and come anew to the conviction that Christianity is not a religion. It is a politic. Tragically, few people, including the majority of Christians, whether liberal or conservative, recognize Christianity as a politic. I'm not suggesting the more palatable notion merely that Christianity has political implications. I am suggesting that it is itself a politic, which has an all-encompassing vision 
of human history. Is that something that you're comfortable agreeing with? I, I like how that last line, and if you see the article, it's in bold, because uh, it kind of fleshes out. When he first started saying that, I was like, really? Okay. Uh, but he's saying that itself, a politic, which is an all-encompassing vision of human history. To put it another way, he goes on to say Christianity is a politics. It's not a political influence theory. Uh, it's this feeling of like, you know, Christianity itself is a worldview. It's a way of seeing the world uh, as opposed to just one slice of the world. All, it's all encompassing and that that needs to, uh, no pun intended here, that needs to trump all that we believe, right, about politics in terms of left or right progressive. We're, we want to have a Christian politic and that's going to get us uh, in line with both sides at different times and in trouble with both sides in different times. And a lot of times we're not comfortable with that. Well, and part of what he says here, he says, I mean, an all encompassing manner of communal, a communal life that grapples with all the questions that classical yeah. art of politics has always asked. How do we live together? How do we deal with offenses? How do we deal with money? How do we deal with enemies and violence? How do we arrange marriages and families and social structures? How is authority mediated, employed or ordered? How do we rightfully order passions and appetites? And much more besides, but most especially add these, where is human history headed? What does it mean to be human? And what does it look like to live in a rightly ordered human community that engenders flourishing justice and the peace of God? Which, to me, sounds like a politic I could get behind, right? Those, those are the kind of questions. And, and, I mean, we're not even really into the meat of the article, nor are we going to have time to. But it's refreshing even in this age of partisanship and divide to even see all of those questions spelled out like that. I'm like, oh, if somebody's running a campaign answering those questions, like what a breath of fresh air it is to even just see it written out like that. Like, oh yeah, that's the kingdom of God type questions I think we need to be asking. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think most people I know, I think you and I both fall in this case, uh, get frustrated by the uh, the the Christian brothers and sisters that we know who are just purely partisan, who are like, nope, I'm this you know party or this movement a hundred percent of the time, right? Uh, and that's why I think this gets at it. We want to be, uh, we want to be, uh, we want to have a Jesus politic a hundred percent of the time. That's the lens we want to look through, and that's the work we want to try to do. It's it's not easy to do, uh, but I would say if you're not comfortable sometimes being on the side of the Republicans and sometimes being on the sides of the Democrats, uh, then this kind of article is going to make you uncomfortable because that's, that's one of the takeaways here. Like you're, you neither has cornered the market. And so often, uh, especially in our Facebook world and our social media world where everything's yelling and everything's taking sides. Uh, sometimes quite frankly, we, we elevate our, our party above our faith. And so this is a whole nother way of looking at it that if I'm, if I know a lot of people out there is going to make them uncomfortable. Let me, I just, rather than sort of offering my thoughts, let me just read the last little bit of it. And again, he's quoting from Lee camp and he calls partisanship imperialism all the way down. Camp says the problems with uh, imperialist instances of Christian practice is not that they understand Christianity to be inherently political they are wrong in allying themselves with coercive political means and such means conjoined with national or imperial borders and identities. By doing so, they subvert the genius of the Jesus for whom the love of God is radically free and radically gracious, making possible, A, the political possibility that rejection and loss may be hallmarks of the kingdom of God until the kingdom comes in fullness, but also, B, the political possibility that unfathomable and yet unimagined possibilities are made possible by the resurrecting power of God even before the kingdom comes in all its fullness. He turns then to Jesus, his testings, his temptations, his life and mission, whatever you want to call the mix 
and he sorts out the options. He says, Jesus was tempted to take up the way of MAGA. Jesus was tempted to become a religious reformer. Jesus was tempted to reduce his work to social activism. Camp says progressives are a bit like first century Pharisees, while the conservatives are a bit like first century Sadducees. <laughs> Jesus was not left, not right, not religious. He was something else. For the witness of would-be Christians to be rehabilitated itself, we must take seriously the fourth socio-spiritual political option, which Jesus chose as an alternative to these three temptations, or we might say a Christianity that is a sort of radical, conservative, or liberal orthodoxy. I think my favorite line is that partisan politics today among Christians is like a fistfight on the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so, I mean, so good. There's something I'm going to have to probably reread that a few times. And I imagine if you're just simply hearing it, that was a lot to take in. But head to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Read the article. Leave a comment. What do you think? Is he spot on? Is he way off? We would love to hear from you and uh, how you interact with these ideas. Well, coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way we always do with a little bit of interweb insanity. I think in these times more than ever, it's important to laugh at least just a little bit. So that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, howdy, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. That wild music means only one thing. Some of you have turned off your radios already. It means (laughs) another thing for other people. It's time for Interweb Insanity. And uh, the name of the game is it's stories that our producers have selected for us. We have not seen them. They've chosen sound effects that we have not heard. You might be thinking... Is this a good idea? And our answer would go, eh, you don't know. Um, it's very possible that it's not, but it's sort of fun and it's uh, it's exhilarating for us. Before we dive into that, I want to mention a couple of things about Thrivent. One, uh, I'm a Thrivent member, have been for seven or eight years. I love Thrivent. You can go to Thrivent.com to learn more. They're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for 100 years. Two, if you're looking for a career change, highly, highly encourage you to head over to Thrivent.com slash careers. Uh, if you're entrepreneurial, you just like coming alongside people and helping them out, that might be a really great fit. Three, because Thriving is so great, they're offering uh, five different webinars in the next week and a half. And all the information is over on our Facebook page. Um, but one is Quarantine Queries with Lisa Graft, where she's asking questions about self-care, taking every thought captive, fighting for joy in the midst of suffering. The other two are from Lindsay Bacardo. And uh, there are about five things you can do to stay productive and manage the stress. So that's literally like five different webinars at various different times of the day. And uh, if that would serve you or support you or help you in any way, head over to the Facebook page 
and all the information is there or you can go to thriving.com and learn more and uh, really, really grateful for them mm-hmm. giving those kind of resources. Uh, Brian, why don't you kick us off with some interweb insanity? I'm going to North Carolina. Right on. North Carolina farm renting out animals to crash Zoom meetings. Oh, boy. A North Carolina farm is offering to spice up Zoom meetings during the COVID-19 pandemic by renting out animals, including a miniature donkey, to participate in teleconferences. Uh, Francie and Mark Dunlap, owners of the Peace and Peas Farm in Indian Trail, said customers are being given the option to give Mambo, an eight-year-old mini donkey, dial into their Zoom conference calls for the price of $50. Oh, boy. The Dunlop said customers can also choose from a variety of other animal interlopers for their meetings, including horses, chickens, and ducks. I think it would get some laughs, Francie Dunlop said. The animal would make an appearance for the first five or ten minutes (laughs) so they could actually get along with their meeting. If I could walk with the animals, talk with the animals, grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals. I'm just going to say it. That's kind of brilliant. That is not bad. I say good for them. All right. Out of Connecticut, police chase loose pig through neighborhood for 45 minutes. That does not bode well for the Connecticut police. Um, the Stanford Police Department said three officers responded to the Roxbury Road area on a report of a loose pig, and the trio were able to locate the animal, but it led them on a 45-minute chase before being captured. A video released by the department shows the officers using an empty garbage can to capture the fleeing pig. Oh, yes, we are well aware of the plethora of jokes this incident <laughs> brings to mind, the department said. <laughs> The pig was taken to Stanford Animal Control while officials attempt to identify its owners. That'll do, pig. That'll do. Next one's out of India. Uh, Monkey caught on camera flying kite on rooftop. Oh my gosh, this photo is amazing. A viral video filmed in India captured a monkey engaging in an activity not known to be common for its species, flying a kite. A video tweeted by Indian Forest Service officer Susanta Nanda shows that small primate holding onto the string and reeling in the flying kite. The monkey catches the kite as it finally reaches the rooftop where the animal is perched. Uh, evolution happening fast due to the lockdown, N- Nanda joked in the post. The exact location where the video was filmed was unclear. Take your sticking paws off me, you dirty ape! All right, next one's out of Georgia. Diploma carried away by Georgia tornado found 30 miles away. A Georgia man whose diploma was among the objects carried away by a tornado was reunited with the documents after it was found 30 miles from his home. Kevin, nope, Kelvin. Kelvin Duke said his middle school <laughs> diploma. Middle, did you get a diploma at middle school? Uh, I remember at least something like a diploma, yeah. Really? Or a certificate. Right. Okay. Uh, it was packed away in a box inside one of the three barns in the backyard of his Upson County home when the tornado swept through the area Monday morning. I could feel the air coming up from the floor, Duke told WGCL-TV. I was waiting for the home to be picked up from its foundations. Yikes, that's terrifying. The house was left standing, albeit severely damaged. The tornado left the area, but all three of the barns were destroyed. Duke said he was surprised to later receive a text from a friend saying his diploma had been found 30 miles away from his house. The document has come to a rest near I-75 in Monroe County. It wasn't crumpled. It was white as snow. It didn't even look like it had been in that tornado. It's a twister. It's a twister. The last one is terrifying out of Wisconsin. Uh, this goes with a this comes with a picture that a goat with two faces is born on a Wisconsin farm. Wow. A Wisconsin farm is celebrating the birth of a highly unusual animal, a goat with two faces. Hmm. Jocelyn Nuske of Nuske Farms in Wittenberg said the baby was born April 5th and was dubbed Janus after the two-headed Roman god. 
Uh, Newski said Janice appears to be healthy. This fight is side-by-side twin mouths and four eyes. Oh, my goodness. They weren't sure if the middle eyes worked, but they were positive about the outside eyes working. He's a normal goat. You just have to help him. We we just try to help him as much as we can and give him a break when he gets tired. She said Janice has been a big hit with the visitors, of course. Uh, Newski, who has operated her goat farm for six years, said she didn't even know it was possible for a goat to be born with two faces. She said, I've heard of two-headed cows and lizards, but not a two-headed goat. I am not an animal! I am a goat. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I'm looking at it again. It's kind of adorable. A little cute, a little scary. We're going to go with both on that. It's the perfect blend of cute and scary here at The Common Good. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. and every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like.